This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking again today with Bo Bonner, Director at the Center for Human Flourishing and the Senior Advisor for Mission Initiatives at Mercy College of Health Sciences, where he's also an assistant professor. He's also the co-host of the Uncommon Good, great radio show and podcast, which you can find in a number of locations wherever you get your podcasts. And today we're talking again about Lent. Bo, it's so good to have you here. Ah, it's great to to be back. I realize that we've talked about Lent more than once, and for someone who clearly doesn't look like he fasts a lot, um, that's quite a, an accomplishment, I have to say. <laughs> well, so you bring up fasting. It's really interesting because I grew up, as everyone here knows, I grew up in the Protestant tradition where we were not very good at fasts and we didn't talk about fasts very often. But when we did talk about fasts, it was the kind of thing where you had to grit through for 40 days and you could have nothing but water or maybe juice if you were weak. Mm. And so now I become Catholic and we're like, okay, so fa- it's, it's a fasting day. So you need to have one full meal and then two smaller snacks that don't together don't equal a meal. And I remember the first time I heard that, I'm like, wait, 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 you're calling that fasting? I mean, how is that, how is that the same thing that I talked about over here in my former tradition? So let's, let's start there. Why does the church have that kind of rules for fasting when maybe when in scripture we see maybe a more austere and extreme kind of fasting? Well, I don't want to get to um, nutritional science about it because I have no right to be. Uh, But if you think about even just something like caloric intake differences um, throughout history, and if you think about our relationship to food and its availability and things like this, it's not only the case that, um, you know, it's not a weight loss fad. So even when you see the sort of ancient fasts, the idea was never like, well, this is going to how, you know, you're going to lose weight or, um, you know, you're going to have nice shiny teeth or whatever. If you, if you do the fast, um, I think what we have to think of first, rather than sort of Olympic feats that we can accomplish through food, or um, this idea of, of spiritually showing off. Food is something very intimate to all of us. Um, it's what keeps you alive socially, right? That's something that we associate with our closest relationships. You eat with your family, you eat with your friends. There's ritual meals, uh, like liturgically, but then there's just ritual meals, sort of, you know, where you're from. You talk about the food that you grew up with. We can tell what part of the world you're from by what your favorite food is. So we have this very intimate thing that we can begin to, I don't want to say show mastery. In fact, and sometimes we show show weakness, but certainly if the practice of the will, that we want to align our will with God's, one very intimate, close to us way to begin is our relationship with food. And so... That's going to be, like we said, very determined by by different circumstances um, throughout history. I mean, you can even get down to some people being very technical that, you know, through the Middle Ages, people were probably running low on food uh, in February and March. So you may as well fast. I mean, there's people who even talk about it in that way. 
But I think that that gets to be where we start. Of course, we match up this this fact, the sort of intimacy of food. And then, of course, we match this up with the story of Jesus in the wilderness and his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so that to me is the wisdom of the church asking us for on that occasion to think about if we're going to give up something, you know, don't necessarily shoot for the moon or think of something exotic. This thing you do every day, you eat. What are you going to do to start practicing that sacrifice of the will? And even as, you know, as we look in scripture and we see these big fasts, so you've got uh, obviously Jesus, you've got uh, Elijah, you have a couple of these like 40 day extreme fasts. And, and then you have other times where it just says, declare a fast. And I mm-hmm. think that, uh, that that's for all of the people. And I think that sometimes we conflate those two, whereas that's not necessarily a foregone conclusion, right? There could be that these prophetic voices needed a more extreme encounter with fasting uh, that was not possibly the, the experience of everyone else. I bring this up because going back to my Protestant upbringing, I remember one encounter I had with a friend of mine. We were both at this point in time at a non-denominational church. And half about halfway through the fast, he was just having a very difficult time keeping the promise that he had made, right? So he set um, a goal for this fast and was having some internal difficulty with keeping that. And as he was having difficulty keeping that, he was wrestling with what does it all mean? <clears throat> what what good does it do if I keep this fast? How am I somehow gaining God's approval if I keep it? And do I therefore lose his approval if I don't? It shook his faith so much that as he deconstructed the idea of what the fast meant and decided that it was not worth what he was putting into it and that it was just generating shame in him, which he was beginning to reject, that he he then took it all the way and just rejected all tenets of the faith because he saw all of them as merely being performative and and generating shame when he didn't match up to that thing, that ideal that he set for himself. And so since that happened, uh, a couple of things have happened. One, he continues to remain in my prayers uh, because that kind of shame is not what this religion is for, right? Uh, But the other thing is I've been really wrestling with how do I present the idea of the fast to myself, but also to my children and to other people that I have influence over? And this year, as I was kind of meditating with it and wrestling with it, I thought of how I get ready for a date with my wife, the kinds of things that I have to set aside in order to uh, to be able to give my attention to my beloved. Uh, these are good things. They're they're the work that I do, the work of my hands. They are the certain attentions that I give to things that are around the house or to my children that are around the house, uh, that I give up those good things in order that I can draw close to my beloved. And so this year I began to think about the fast in that way, as opposed to, oh, well, I've got to give up this thing because it's going to show how good I am uh, to, to be able to muscle through that. Or I'm going to give up this thing because 
while it's not sin, it's not the best thing for me. So I'm going to give up Dr. Pepper. I'm going to give up these other things that maybe I have an unhealthy relationship so that maybe I can take it longer, treating it almost like a new year's resolution rather than saying, I desire to draw close to my beloved. And so I'm going to set these things down for that purpose, uh, realizing that one of these days I'm going to have to pick work back up. I'm going to have to re-engage with my children. I'm going to have to re-engage with all of those good things. So it's not a permanent giving up, but it is a choice for the purpose of being near my beloved. And so that this year, that's kind of been my thought process as I approach the Lenten fast. Hmm. Well, beyond it being interesting and also this this giving up your children for a while to be with your spouse sounds great. Uh, no, I'm teasing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I think what's interesting how this works out is um, – so I wrote an article, I think it's 2018. Funny enough, I was writing about writing and I was writing about how I don't like writing. Uh, I love talking. Uh, probably why I go on your show all the time. Um, I've, I come from a very uh, verbal culture that st- tells stories. If you needed me to go speak in front of 30,000 people, like in 10 minutes, I could do it. But writing is very torturous because uh, to me, I'm just it's very aware that it's like a, a Frankenstein monster that outlives you once you write it. And in this article, I made this point that one of the things that I learned from composition, teaching composition, which I didn't expect to do, it was sort of this um, pivot left for a while, uh, about 10 or so years ago that I ended up doing, is very thankful for it because I'm going to tell you there's an analog between how people feel shame about how, well, I'm not smart, I can't write. They, they will start to approach grammar rules like they're what you're talking about, just this shame inducing thing. And like the only reason that we have grammar and, and, and compositional rules is, so to speak, to make people feel bad so they never become writers. And what's interesting about this is I go, look, folks, you guys all actually are pros at grammar. Like you're, you're, you, you know the grammar of your people, of your friend group, where you're from. You picked it all up. You're naturals when you're speaking. What's scary, right, is that if we're going to go participate uh, in a certain type of writing or in a, in a certain sort of way, it's like you said, there's manners. Grammars are manners. And the manners are so we say that there's these agreed upon ways so that you can um, you can ke- you, you can court an audience. Right. That's what you're trying to do. You try to clean up a bit. You talk. Uh, you, you write a little nicer than you talk. Uh, it's like first dates. Right. When people go. Well, you know, in first dates, people act so fake. They're not telling who you really are. And you go, well, yeah, because who you are is a lot. I mean, maybe not you, man, but me, I'm a lot. I'm a lot to take in. And so what is a first date? You want to get people to know you and, you know, be attracted to you. So maybe there might be another date. Uh, You don't plan to lie. You're going to have to tell them who you are at some point. But there's some way in which we purify who we are. Uh, to try to get at the essence of someone and meet them where they're at. So this idea in writing, I said, is you're, you're trying to catch a muse, right? You're you're trying to prepare. You're trying to do stuff different so that when the time comes, you'll be able to write. Now, I say this. This is like a metaphor on top of a metaphor on this time. We're in inception zone here on the show. Is that something similar is happening with Lent? I think you're exactly right that the best things we give up in Lent are things that are actually great, uh, even, and that not only bring us joy, like, you know, candy or food, 
um, but that are obviously good. And this goes back to the first comments about food. Food is wonderful. It's how we walk around on earth. If we don't have it, we stop walking around on earth. It's very good. Are we going to give up some of these very good things in order, like you said, for a particular time in a particular place, for a particular relationship to make that special and, like you said, draw closer to the beloved, which is God. And when we take on that mindset, um, it's like you said, hopefully it stops being like spiritual gymnastics or um, hubris or, like you said, this sort of shame-inducing thing that sort of unravels everything. And strangely enough, it's how do I show myself by giving myself a chance to, uh, sprucing up's not even the right word. I think people know what we mean here. You're not being fake with your beloved when you decide to, you know, actually maybe comb your beard for once uh, or put on the shirt that you're not always going to wear because this is a special time. So if Easter is a special time, that's one way to think about Lynn is the sort of preparation for a special time. And that would involve doing things that you normally wouldn't do. You might wear shoes that aren't everyday shoes because sure, if you wore them 300 days out of the year, they might pinch. But for this, they look nice. You're showing the beloved why they're important. So this is a long way to say is I find a very intriguing way for you to, to put this to people. Not that it's a, I mean, I'm sure people can nitpick about the, if it's a perfect metaphor or not, but it is certainly a very profitable one for us to reflect on. Well, I think it goes even beyond the fasting metaphor, right? Because we, when we get ready to be with the beloved, we, we certainly set aside specific things. That's the fasting part. Uh, but then we also give greater attention to the beloved, right? So there's, you, you also have, uh, the, the prayer aspect, like we are attempting to, to connect in a specific way so that the relationship, the, the communion of that relationship grows and increases uh, as we grow together. Uh, and I'm sure if we spend enough time here, we could also come up with the almsgiving side of it. But there's just the sense of we give of ourselves. There it is right there. Uh, we give of ourselves. We set certain things aside and we in, put our intention towards other things all for the sake of greater uh, intimacy. And, well, I, and I think that if we look at it that way, and we look at Lent in that way, it ceases to be beating ourselves up or shame-inducing, and it becomes almost a joyous ritual, if not a joyous ritual, because of what it entails. Well, and I mean, I'm just even going to interrupt you with uh, almsgiving. I mean, the point of taking your spouse out like on Valentine's day or just like it's date night is to blow money. Let's be honest, right? If you're not going <laughs> out and sort of overspending, it's not even, it's not date night until you overspend. And I know it sounds like I'm being silly, but, but that's sort of what we're meaning with almsgiving. I think about St. Ephraim the Syrian saying that there's two altars where we offer up our sacrifices to God. One is obviously the altar of the Eucharist, but the other is the hands of the poor and precisely, I mean, I always worry when anybody makes it too utilitarian. So I think it's right to say, hey, precisely in Lent, if instead of going out to eat 
you stay home and eat something of of ruder you know ruder fare so that you have money you know saved over that that money belongs by right to those who don't have enough and that's true but i also want it to be like yeah and you are throwing it away right like you're not getting it back and you should give it if possible in a way that you really can't you know get high fives for it um that 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 is the spirit of lint and i i think you're right i think that's the spirit of a date right if you're you're going to go you know eat um you're going to take the wife out and get a, a a costco or sam's rotisserie chicken that's not date night right it, it's it's got to be a bit too much and and there's something to that right like you're special i saved up money for us to buy something with a french name that probably could be cheaper somewhere else because you're you and this is special so no, I, I think all the way through that um, very apt way for us to connect with an aspect of Lent, the pre- preparation for the bridegroom, like you say, the, the bride and the bridegroom. Yep. As I sit here with this idea, and I just want to kind of push around the edges of this metaphor a little bit more, uh, the date night, <clears throat> if we can stay with this metaphor, uh, is never meant to be the the... Uh, the place at which we stay, right? It's not like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get ready to have this encounter with the beloved so that we can go to this mountaintop and camp out there and live there and stay there, right? The goal is always for this to be a moment of connection uh, and a moment of growing intimacy to help sustain the everydayness of, shall we say, ordinary time. And so, too, I think that for us, as we get through the preparation period, we get to the Easter season and we live through that uh, divine date of Easter, uh, as we become more and more sharers in the divine life, that it's not always going to be that high point. And so we have the, the fast of preparation. We have the feast of the connection, but it carries over and it impacts us beyond that moment. Yeah. Um, I was, I was listening to you, but at the same time I have to admit running through my head, there's a, a country band I like called uh, Silverada and they have a song called steak night at the Prairie Rose. And I kept thinking of date night with lady poverty is what we're actually trying to say here, right? It's sort of a, a Franciscan informed idea of Lent that precisely in giving things up, it's a song of a troubadour singing a romance to Christ's beloved too, right? That uh, you, know, you, you get into St. Francis and the poetry of the early Franciscans enough, they, that's how they talk, is that um, Christ is the one true lover, right? Who loved Lady Poverty enough to die with her on the cross and die for her. And that's the connection that the Franciscans make. And so it's like you said, Lent is precisely this date night with Lady poverty, and I don't mean that only with money, right? But this idea of um, that we we what we give away or what we give up, um, but like you said, also what we take on. Um, the the Franciscans took on the habit, right? Um, that will be a fecund relationship through the rest of the year. Um, that even if, you know, of course, what's being begged here, right? So we're talking about the date night to sort of make it a modern analog for people to think of, but certainly all of the bridal imagery 
um, that the church has talked about for for centuries plays in this well. And to your point, um, the feast of the bridegroom is always for us to, so to speak, live it out um, through Pentecost, but then into ordinary time, like you're saying, um, only in anticipation, right, about the uh, the feast that we'll have forever in heaven. So I think, I, with, I mean, I, I really do dig this metaphor. I think it's important for people who are prone to, like you're saying, trying to be spiritual Olympiad or people who scrupulosity sort of um, makes prone for shame. Like all good things, I think you can misuse the metaphor, um, uh, you know, if, if people are trying to make it sound like it's easier taking a break. But I only bring that up to to point out, um, of course, the best lovers, the ones who love their beloved most, um, even when they're doing things like a leisurely night with their beloved, um, a lovely night, something that's supposed to be, um, like you said, out of the ordinary and, and, and take the... Uh, the burden of everyday cares, they put a lot of work into that. And sometimes I think that's what people forget, right? Is, you know, we'll put a lot of work into vacations or earning money for entertainment, but really when people pull it off best and whatever romance is, it's not some sort of like group of techniques. Uh, whatever love at, at its root is, is, is to show that I will put forth that effort for you, my beloved, uh, everything that is sort of uh, intertwined in, in the, the book of the song of Psalms song of songs. So going to you, you brought up the idea of people who struggle with scrupulosity or struggle with that, that additional shame for the person who wrestles with that scrupulosity. How do we get out of beyond just talking about the metaphor? Uh, how do we get out of that place where we're keeping score of Am I doing enough? Am I somehow, like even as we talk about date night and, and put it in that metaphor, that could still become a checklist of, mm-hmm. oh, I have to meet this if I'm going to uh, really have a profitable Lent, if I'm really going to be spiritual enough, if I'm really going to have that intimacy with God. And in the process of making it a task, uh, we pull ourselves out of what spiritual benefit we could otherwise get. No, I think this is um, very pertinent. I, um, whenever I've had the occasion to get to talk either to scrupulous people or talk to to help people out about the idea of um, what's the best way to help people who are scrupulous, I always like to point out that it's the minute that we act like the scrupulous are some sort of problem to solve that we've missed out that they're actually a very prophetic voice that we need to hear. One thing that the scrupulous are dead correct about is that this is all serious business and this loving Christ and that like the, the perfection of Christian love that he calls us to, the most important things in life. If you're going to sort of drive yourself crazy uh, worrying about something, I mean, God is, wor- you know, Nothing else is as worth it as with God. Now, what I say, though, is like they are a condemnation to us who take it frivolously because they're correct and we're not, right? It is important. But what I think that they need to like hear and that if the church can make them feel safe in their relationship with God is, of course, that's the point. No one can earn this. There is no gaining it. And to try to earn it, 
is to make it not the gift that it is. But, you know, again, it's a very human mistake, like you say. Um, even like you said, a, a, with, da- you know, the, 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 I don't know if this is where the metaphor, it's not that it breaks down, but one place that we need to point out is, of course, most date nights work with spouses because you're like, that's my spouse. This is the person I know emotionally that I'm connected to. So I have that sort of reassurance beforehand. And so I would even say this to to make the metaphor continue. I think there's a lot of benefit to doing difficult Lent if you have that safety in the love. Like if you know and you are relatively spiritual mature, and that's usually not yours to judge alone, right? There's other people that should help you think through this. But if you do have that intimacy, then like, yeah, you know, really live it up for lady poverty and and have have a, a lint that pushes you because hopefully, right, you fail some, which is part like that's actually a good too. That's a great gift. I wish like, you know, that someone could have helped your friend that you were talking about realize that that f- like the reason lint is so successful is either you do it, you do what you were doing and you're like, hey, good job, right? Like just to be willing to do that stuff for Christ. It's good in doing it in and of itself, even if nothing came from it. But alternatively, if you fail, whatever that means, like you don't do it, great. Now you've learned you can't do it alone. Like Lent in the right spirit is fail-proof in the same way that date night with your spouse in the right spirit is fail-proof, right? In fact, what are some of the most fun date nights you can have is the monumental failures, right? That you can laugh about for years, right? Oh yeah, we went and tried that food. Very much not for us. We watched a horrible movie, you know, like that. that's the sort of the very stuff that makes spouses close. The legend. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so if you can go in thinking like, look, I'm going to make my best effort to show my spouse that this is a special time. But the point is not the things themselves. The point is the special time. And even more so, the point is the spouse. But I understand, right, how it's easy because trying to make things a checklist is very tangible. And I think sometimes with the scrupulous, um, there's various reasons people have tender conscience. And so they're varied. And so you can't solve it universally for everyone. But I do think for some, the um, impulse to judge closely um if you have anxieties or certain fears, one comfortable thing seems to be like, I have a checklist and I checked it off, right? The world is a very confusing place, but I have these five things I'm supposed to do. And if I can do them, bam, bam, bam. The problem, as I think you've intimated, is you can always add a sixth one or a seventh or, and you keep going. And that's when we we have to be a community and help people. Like you said, there's more than one metaphor for Lent different people through different parts of their life probably need to be called to reflect on those in different way. And for the scrupulous, I hope they hear this is, you know, the feast is going to be provided by the bridegroom uh, because it's Jesus Christ. So in confidence, um, we can do these things, like you say, not to earn time with the bridegroom, but to show that we care. Yeah. We're talking today with Bo Bonner, director for the Center for Human Flourishing at Mercy College of Health Sciences out in Des Moines, Iowa. We're talking about Lent and the preparation process for Easter, for being with the beloved. 
Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. The handle is at step outside the walls and don't go anywhere because there's so much more to this conversation right after the break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Bo Bonner. He's the director for the Center for Human Flourishing and the senior advisor for mission initiatives at Mercy College of Health Sciences there in Des Moines, Iowa. He's also the co-host of The Uncommon Good, uh, a beautiful uh, radio show and blog there with Bo Bonner and Bud Marr. Uh, we're talking today about our Lenten preparation and maybe reframing that Lenten preparation in such a way that we see it as even a joyful thing. I think often we think about penance and the immediate picture that comes into our head when we think of penance is uh, Eeyore or shame or some kind of, I have to be downcast in order to to properly uh, experience penance. And yet, if we look in the gospel, one of the things that Jesus says is, when you fast, don't put on the long face, but anoint your head and get get dressed and make people have to question whether, you know, uh, don't don't make it easy for them to say, oh, that person right there, that person's fasting. So how do we live a fruitful Lent if our whole perception of Lent is of loss and of being downcast and of somehow, uh, you know, beating ourselves with whips and chains until we are uh, sufficiently uh, degraded, right? The the whole purpose of Lent is for us to be closer and closer to the beloved, to Christ, to be more and more configured to the person of Christ. And that's never a, a downcast thing. Being configured to Christ and sharing in his nature is always a joyful thing. And Bo, right there at the end, you were talking about um, something about doing this in community. I don't think you use those exact words, but something about what you said brought to my mind the fact that, yes, we have these Lenten penances that we sometimes we choose for ourselves, for us individually to get closer to Christ, but the bridegroom and the bride is not me and Jesus. It's the mystical body of Christ in the church and Christ. So there is a corporate aspect to Lent. And I think also to our Lenten observance that sometimes gets lost in the fray here in our Western individualistic society. So I wonder if you might point out some of the ways that we can have a communal Lent as we prepare for this union with Christ. Yeah, no, of course. I think, you know, let's go back to talk about food one more time and the sort of realities that are very different between food now and food in the past. And th this actually out of the gate has something to do with the communal nature of Lent. So, you know, we walk through life and food, this very intimate thing, I have to eat it or I'm not going to live, uh, is also something presented to me as just endless individual choices, right? I, I you know, uh, I can like wake up every day and spend a lot of mental energy thinking about what individual things that am I going to do? Sure, I might bring around friends or this or that, 
But then I get to the restaurant. And even if I communally go to the restaurant, now we all can choose like 15 different things. And I'm not bashing restaurants. I eat at them way too often to be bashing them. But I have to say, if you live through most of human history, the communal nature of food is not lost on you. So I, I, I mentioned that at the beginning, you know, again, this is sort of like religious sociology. I am very much not trying to overload this with meaning, but you start to think that in the, nor the Northern Hemisphere and in Europe, in most places, by February and March, if you just think about the weather and how agricultural societies work, you all know there's not a lot of stuff to eat that would be, uh, you know, what, what we would say in, in times of plenty and harvest. Let's just say that at least. Um, even meat is probably starting to be uh, whatever you had. It's probably starting to go down. Things like this. Um, and everyone would know that, right? Like you would live in a community and you would know what food stuff is available. So when you do things like we're all going to do Lent, and the closest analog to this is probably um, Eastern churches uh, uh, in, in our day and age. They have a much more strict fast than we do, but they have nearly, it's not completely true, but they have nearly no conception that you would ever do it alone. They're like, oh yeah, like you almost eat with the church as much as possible during Lent uh, in most Eastern churches. And, and I'm probably idealizing and overdoing it a bit, but certainly it is a very different take on this idea. But I think that people realize this, you know, intimately. This is why even when the pandemic happened, like why Peloton like went like hotcakes, right? It's because even though you were locked there and all you could do is ride your bike or whatever, you were at least going to like look on a video as if you were all riding this very expensive bike together. Um, there's just something to it that even when we are doing something difficult, we're taking on a task, we're exercising, we're making a big change in our life. People like to go do that in community because there's something about, like Aristotle says, that seeing it reflected in someone else is easier than seeing it in yourself. And so it's great to run a marathon, but if you train with people or if you have, by the way, racing uh, crowds are always weird to me because you're like, there, there they are, and then they're done. But, you know, I'd rather watch a football game. But crowds go out, right, to like encourage these people who've really hit the pinnacle of what they've been training for. And so for us, it's something very much the same. It is easy to get in a Western consumer mindset and you're going to go, oh, I'm going to consume what I'm giving up, which of course is paradoxically to ruin the whole thing because you're not supposed to be consuming, right? Um, this is why in monasteries, um, almost no one, I'm not going to act like I've been in every monastery, but certainly the Benedictine rule really has the idea you're not going to choose your own penance. Um, if not the abbot, like a dean that's over you will, um, you're going to read communally or you'll have a book chosen for you. This idea of doing the will of another, which gets back to the shame idea, right? If you choose the obstacle course of spirituality that you need to run and overcome and lint, then you don't do it. Then you're like, it's, it's the shame is like, I can't even do what I would hope to do. But if the practice of Lent is to learn to do the will of another so that you can do God's will, then, then failure is sort of just 
part of the trial and error of it all, right? Like you're trying to get somewhere with Lent and you're going to get there with people. It's not a proving ground, a checklist, et cetera. Yeah. And that's, this was something I was going to bring up, this idea of that, that I've heard recently of having someone else that you trust who knows you, who can see past your own proclivities and see past your own uh, things that you may be, may be fooling yourself, that someone else picks the penance. But <clears throat> as we are not all as holy as those living in monasteries, I would point out, make sure that you're picking someone, if you do want to go that way, that you ask the voice of someone that you trust who is not going to uh, to overburden you. Because the whole, in fact, as you look at the rule of St. Benedict, one of the rules for abbots is that they be uh, strict enough and strong enough to challenge the strong, mm-hmm. but gentle enough that they do not overburden the weak. Yeah, And so if if you don't have that person picking for you, it could very quickly become... Uh, and exercising control, which is certainly not yes. the goal that we're shooting for here. And I was even going to throw out that, I mean, first of all, um, lay people should always be careful in this regard. Um, certainly, I hope none of us, no one hears us saying like, you should go play monk for 40 days. That's not what we're <laughs> right. getting at. Um, but I, I also think in lay situations, just having a one-on-one where there is no checks, there's no other communal life that sort of looks in on that is probably not the best way to do it. But if you have a small group of friends, right? It's four of you, five of you. I mean, I I don't have a magic number. And like you said, if you're friends enough to say, hey, like, you know, that I think might be the sort, and again, very much conversation. Again, no one has been bound by vow to listen to like their buddy Jim tell them what to do, right? So, but if there's four or five of you, I mean, yeah, like, you, you, that would, I mean, whether you're there or not, I think that's a cool thing to shoot for. Like one lint, four or five of you get around and the other guys go, well, what about this man? And you're like, eh. and then they're like, well, I don't, you know, that would be cool. Um, and so whether you can do, whether you think you could find that person tomorrow or not, um, maybe even just having that as an idea of like, oh, that'd be cool to shoot for someday. Maybe that can get us in the habit, like you said. But perhaps maybe a step in that direction is to inquire, to say to someone that you trust, hey, what are the places where you see in my life could use some extra uh, attention, Hmm. right? So maybe they're not picking it for you. Maybe they're not holding you accountable, but but being able to to get an outside perspective as we uh, we seek to to grow in holiness, right? Because we don't always see where our shortcomings are. Yeah. As long as it's not, uh, you know, something impossible, like Bo, we've noticed that you've not dunked the ball since we've known you, you know, sort of, but yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Like if, uh, if, if it's not, if it's not making it impossible, if it's not, um, throwing a wrench in, um, more primary responsibilities, like, you know, your role as a father, I'm thinking for instance of me, um, then, then yes, uh, I, I think just opening up to the possibility that we hopefully could care for each other enough and to give, you know, advice like that. And like you said, uh, the, the hope is um, if we start having intergenerational community at a parish that um, maybe you can go talk to an old timer and uh, hear what their life 
experience would it be able to to give you some some pointers or conversely it's always interesting to hear children uh and their first stabs at um giving things up not because i mean they usually pick some pretty uh you can usually guess it's usually candy um but even if you like take the time to ask a kid like well why you know because we're thinking like ah frivolous thing candy um but i've heard children make the connection between like you know candy is is sweet and i i love it and i look forward to it and so i want to think about the sweetness of of jesus and look forward to easter i mean i've heard the mouths of babes say things that profound that again in our adult minds we're like well if it's not something akin to like you said a, a new year's resolution then it's not real right as we talk about community one of the things that i have seen increasingly is Sociologists are talking about a, a an epidemic of loneliness, and as we even as we practice our Lenten practices behind our own closed doors, I think that we can miss out on opportunities. If your parish has the the soup suppers, if your parish has activities or specific um, communal opportunities during this season, and you don't take advantage of them. Uh, no shame, right? We're, we're busy talking about that, but we're missing out on something I think that's fundamental to, uh, to our own spiritual health uh, and our own spiritual good that can help us walk back and, and overcome in, in these small steps this epidemic of loneliness that we currently ourselves are experiencing. You know what? I think it's interesting about that too. You're certainly right on all of those things. I always try to be careful because I'm such an extrovert that, you know, if I go in and people are like the advice is to, you know, go to more Catholic parties. I'm like, I'm there. Uh, <laughs> but I think about the introverts in my life and what it means for them to be more communal. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to like uncomfortably be chatterboxes in places that cause a lot of anxiety. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I actually think, again, they have a lot to teach us. One thing that most introverts, I would say in my experience, are really good at is they know how to not equate loneliness necessarily with being alone, because they actually like being alone. So being by yourself is not necessarily being lonely, but being unable to dwell with yourself is loneliness. Weirdly enough, loneliness is not simply, I mean, it certainly has to do this idea that like if people who want connection don't feel it, right? Like, and again, the pandemic is absolute proof of this, that people really felt like they couldn't have those connections because they couldn't see people. But it's also the case that loneliness stems from an inability to dwell in the silence of one's own presence. And so weirdly enough, what I would hope churches do is that it might be too much for some people to be silent by themselves and not feel lonely. There's all sorts of reasons for this. You can get into high philosophy and sociology about it. But I think it's safe to say there's plenty of people that why they go look on the phones, why they seek distractions, why they sort of like try to reach for like the, the narcotic effect of things is because being alone with themselves is terrifying. And that's where loneliness stems. 
So maybe what we need to do is start making it where people can go practice being silent together so that they don't equate silence with loneliness. And whether that's at adoration or maybe it's just teaching kids. I mean, maybe it's just letting like a classroom of kids start learn to be comfortable for five minutes. Silence. And not tell them that, like you said, they have to like get to anything. They don't need to have some grand revelation or vision that it's just okay to dwell in silence with oneself. Because, of course, you're never alone. You always have you, whether you like that or not. That's like the wherever you go, you're there. But, of course, God is always there. Loneliness, right, is the inability to be in silence with ourselves precisely because we feel cut off from ourselves. And if we feel cut off from ourselves... We certainly feel cut off from the God who made us and who's interior to us. So maybe we need to have a communal practice of silence to get back in those habits. And Lent would seem a good place to start. Spoken like a Benedictine oblate. (laughs) Well, you know, I I don't know if I can speak to the fasting part as well, so I can do that part. (laughs) We're talking today with Bo Bonner, who is the director for the Center for Human Flourishing at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines, Iowa. Both, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been great and uh, blessings to all of your listeners uh, for, for Lent and into Easter. If you missed any part of my conversation with Bo Bonner or you want to go back and listen to something again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, click the guest list there in the menu bar. Scroll down to Bo's name and there you will find a, a page that has all of the episodes listed where Bo has joined us over the years to be able to revisit those conversations at your leisure. And if you're still looking for more, click the Patreon link there in the menu bar at OutsideTheWalls.com, and there you will find extra unbroadcast segments. These are segments that we make first and foremost for all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them some extra content, some interesting tangents, and those are made available to them first, and then after a while are made available to the general public. So even if you are not a part of that community, there is still a lot of content there that you would find interesting. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans out of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That reading comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 5. And the thing that I want to point out, and the thing I think Paul is pointing out here first and foremost, is that we are loved by God, and we are loved to the end by Christ. Because we have received reconciliation, because we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the things that we experience and endure bring into us a growing sense of holiness, a growing sense of endurance and character and holiness and hope. And that hope does not put us to shame. All of this is a thing for shame to go away. Perfect love, we see in another place in Scripture, perfect love casts out all fear And shame is just the fear of being rejected. And so there is no place for shame in this relationship because why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as we are preparing for Lent, we are preparing for intimacy with the beloved. We're preparing to be made one, to be unified and joined into one with Christ. And Christ did this not because of any merit that we had. It's just like date night. There's not really a chance that if I go to my beloved and say, I would like to set everything aside and focus on you and take you out and be united with you and close to you. There's not really a chance that that she's going to say, you know, I'm really, I don't, I don't know that I, I want a date night. This is not like a first date. This is a date with your beloved. So we don't have to put on airs because we are already known and already loved. We see that today in our reading from church history, maybe a little bit more clearly. This is from selections from St. Augustine's Confessions. Urged to reflect upon myself, I entered under your guidance into the inmost depth of my soul. I was able to do so because you were my helper. On entering into myself, I saw, as it were, with the eye of the soul what was beyond the eye of the soul, beyond my spirit, your immutable light. It was not the ordinary light perceptible to all flesh. Nor was it merely something of greater magnitude, but still essentially akin, shining more clearly and diffusing itself everywhere by its intensity. No, it was something entirely distinct, something altogether different from all these things. And it did not rest above my mind as oil on the surface of water, 
nor was it above me as heaven is above earth. This light was above me because it had made me. I was below it because I was created by it. He who has come to know the truth knows this light. O eternal truth, true love and beloved eternity, you are my God. To you do I sigh day and night. When I first came to know you, you drew me to yourself so that I might see that there were things for me to see, but that I myself was not yet ready to see them. Meanwhile, you overcame the weakness of my vision, sending forth most strongly the beams of your light, and I trembled at once with love and dread. I learned that I was in a region unlike yours and far distant from you, and I thought I heard your voice from on high. I am the food of grown men. Grow then, and you will feed on me. Nor will you change me into yourself like bodily food, but you will be changed into me. I sought a way to gain strength, which I needed to enjoy you. But I did not find it until I embraced the mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who is above all, God blessed forever. He was calling me and saying, I am the way of truth. I am the life. He was offering the food which I lacked the strength to take, the food he had mingled with our flesh. For the word became flesh that your wisdom, by which you created all things, might provide milk for us children. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet, if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. That reading comes from St. Augustine from the Confessions. And this last paragraph, I think, is a beautiful picture of Lent, because it shows a couple of things really clearly. One that sometimes we look for fulfillment in the wrong things. We look for fulfillment in the beautiful things that God has created rather than in the Creator Himself. But we also see that we find God through sight and sound and taste and smell and touch, that as hard as we think we might be looking for God— God is putting much more effort into reaching us. We look for God, but He shines and flashes to get our attention. We listen for God, but He shouts to break through our deafness. 
And so we don't have to worry that we're not doing enough because he is doing that work, calling for us, drawing us in so that we can be with our beloved. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.